I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. I'm done. One company. I'm done. I'm done. One company that's hired you. Do you think they might have if you were not the mayor? That was Miami Mayor Francis Suarez refusing to answer a question from Local 10 News' Glenna Milberg about another potential ethics problem. Our news partners at the Miami Herald unearthed this week. This time, it involves his push to give a no-bid city contract to a software company that is a partner of a firm that was paying Suarez for consulting services. Suarez is already under FBI and Miami-Dade County investigation for several other instances of mayoral moonlighting and the troubling conflict of interest concerns they raise. Now local Democrats are calling for the, re- for the Republican Suarez to step down. This week, Suarez proposed major reforms to Miami city government, including, ironically, giving its mayor a stronger role. But what looks more urgent now is the possible creation of an independent corruption investigator, which Miamians will vote on in August, in response to the torrent of real and alleged malfeasance plaguing the magic city today. Do you believe Mayor Suarez has crossed the ethical line? Does Miami need more serious corruption oversight? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio here is one of the Miami Herald reporters investigating that issue, Tess Risky. Tess, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for coming in. Let's start with the big new ethics optics problem the Herald discovered this week concerning Mayor Suarez. You and your colleagues Sarah Blasky, Alex Harris, and Joey Flachus found emails from 2022 and 2023 that show Suarez and his aides pushing to award this no-bid contract to the software, the software firm N0, a company that just happens to be the partner of the investment firm Redivider, which just happened to be employing Suarez as a consultant in his, shall we say, off hours. What struck you guys most about those emails and the obvious conflict of interest issues they raised? I think what's most interesting is um, the timing of all of it. Um, so as the mayor and his staff pushed for a no bid a no bid contract between the city and N0 at the same time N0 and Redivider which employs the mayor as you noted mm-hmm. were negotiating a partnership right. and we know that the mayor was aware of this partnership um, emails indicate that there was coordination between his office and N0 about the quote that would be attributed to the mayor included in the press release announcing that partnership so this has sort of an insider trading feel to it as well no uh, I'm not I, sure. No, but I mean, but what the point I'm getting at is that this gets worse though because Suarez was actually a minority owner of Redivider. No, so I mean, if he's aware of the fact that Redivider's value could be burgeoning as a result of a coming partnership with this software company, um, that raises an even another layer of questions. No. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, we know that the mayor uh, had a quarter of a percent ownership stake in Redivider and stock mm. options, according to his uh, a previous disclosure from last summer. Okay. Anything else about these emails that stuck out to you guys when you were going over them about about this whole you know this whole 
uh, practice of pushing for this no-bid contract for this company given all of the extracurricular factors right. there? Well, uh, the fact that the services that N-Zero were planning to provide the city were largely redundant was interesting. Um, they were planning to um, offer this carbon emissions tracking software to the city, mm -hmm. um, but the city already had somebody doing that in-house um, at no additional cost to taxpayers. So it sort of stood out because it seemed like a redundant service. Right. It, this work was being done for free, essentially, by a city employee, you know? Right. As you point out. Right. Um, one other um, thing I think we want to point out here, can you help us a understand a little bit better what exactly Redivider, the company that was employing Suarez as a consultant and then partnering up with this software company, N-Zero, what exactly does Redivider do? Well, Redivider was initially in Florida trying to make a deal actually in the city of Homestead. It's um it's a blockchain opportunity zone fund. Okay, so they, Bitcoin is involved yes, Bitcoin there, which, is, which involved. is something Francis Suarez yes. is really, really big on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had plans to um, operate this crypto mining plant in South Miami-Dade. Um, I don't know exactly how they got connected directly to the mayor, though. Okay, but it also helps fund investment for data centers, right? Uh, it, 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 I, I think I read as well. So it's 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 um, it's a company that's got a lot a lot of irons in the fire, uh, right. essentially Correct. that 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 he that he wanted to be involved with. So this scandal just adds to the gallery of potential ethics infractions Mayor Suarez has been involved in, including his consulting work for a controversial local developer, Rishi Kapoor, who was seeking permit permitting favors from the city for a major project. All this has landed the mayor in federal and county investigations. Where do those stand now? Starting, let's let's start with the FBI investigation that I think if I if I'm correct, in, is 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 focused specifically on that Rishi Kapoor case? No. Yeah, that's okay. correct. So our understanding is these investigations are still ongoing. There's the FBI investigation, which, like you said, stems from uh, the mayor's involvement with Rishi Kapoor. Then there's the uh, sort of joint investigation with the state attorney's office and the county ethics commission that's mm -hmm. happening. Right. The county and explain how the the the, the connection between the state attorney and the county ethics commission. Does the county ethics commission sort of take its findings and throw over to the state attorney then to investigate further? How does that dynamic work? I'm not totally sure about how they're divvying up the work or collaborating, but mm -hmm. we do know that the Ethics Commission um, recently expanded the scope of its investigation a little bit, um, recently requesting city emails that included mm -hmm. uh, mentions of the mayor's other uh, outside employment. Right. And as we've talked about on the show before, that again, these are just two of the scenarios that have investigators worried when it comes to, to, to the ethics, as I said before, optics. Uh, that Mayor uh, Suarez is involved in. And let's remind folks just how lucrative this consultant moonlighting work has been for the mayor. I mean, it's essentially made him a millionaire in a relatively short time, right? No? That's correct. When he um, was starting out in office, his net worth was around $250,000. Mm -hmm. And then in the most recent disclosure from July, it was closer to $3.4 million. Right. And now, not that there's anything wrong with someone raking it in as a consultant, but why does he insist that there, um, you know, that, that there that there is no problem here with that private work, 
even though it it has so obviously often intersected with his public duties. Does Why does he insist that this is all above board? The mayor has essentially said that, um, you know, there is there's no overlap and that he does not use his private his public office to benefit his private business dealings. So he's just been um, affirmative about the fact that he follows the law and that, you know, there's no conflict. But what does the law say? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to be a lawyer here, but what essentially does the law say then about the mayor of a city pushing for a no bid contract for a company that he's obviously got financial interest in. That's why I brought up that sort of insider trading analogy. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a better question for investigators. But yeah, generally speaking, you're not supposed to use your public office to benefit yourself financially. So that's something for those investigators to figure out. Uh And and it makes one wonder why why it isn't more strongly defined or more clearly defined in Miami City regulations. Right. I mean, that's an interesting point, too, because we didn't learn about the majority of the mayor's outside employment until he filed a disclosure for his presidential run. Because the city of right. Miami did not require this sort of, you know, right. point so by point. So it was essentially a federal regulation that, that, that forced him to uh, uh, expose to us what the, the potential municipal problem is here. Correct. Right. Now, Mayor Suarez did get one ethics investigation dropped this week. The Florida Ethics Commission dismissed one brought by a liberal political activist here, and Suarez took the opportunity to declare that all this scrutiny he's receiving is just a, quote, coordinated coup attempt that radical liberal activists, political mercenaries, and their allies in the local leftist media, I I guess that's us, have perpetrated against him. But Tess, is the mayor announcing his exoneration (laughs) a bit too prematurely here? Uh, Perhaps. Um, (laughs) Considering the other ongoing investigations, you could say that's perhaps premature. And I want to note, there's also another Florida Ethics Commission investigation that is still ongoing or has concluded and that there's going to be a hearing for it next month. So one was dismissed. One is still at play. Okay, thanks. Thanks for pointing that out. And in fact, the laundry list of Mayor Suarez's questionable freelancing has gotten long enough The Democrats now feel emboldened to call for his resignation. Any chance that could happen? Uh, I haven't heard of that happening, and there's no indication that that's going to happen. Yeah, and I would imagine that that nothing like that will happen until we see some of the results of these investigations. Yeah. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. I'm speaking with the Miami Herald's Tess Risky. We're talking about the latest ethics controversy surrounding Miami Mayor Francis Suarez and the raft of corruption scandals plaguing the city. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So Tess, let's pivot a bit here to Mayor Suarez's State of the City address this week which ironically was full of reform proposals. Among them was enlarging Miami City Commission from five to seven members. He also said those commissioners should all be at large and not elected from designated districts, which I think is grist for a whole other segment to talk about. But another was to hold city elections in even number years to raise Miami's dismal voter turnout, an interesting one. And another, more significant, was to give the mayor of Miami a larger and stronger role in city government than the largely part-time profile it carries now. Do these proposals have public support, do you think? 
I think some of them do and some of them I'm not so sure about. So mm-hmm. for the strong mayor proposal, you know, in 2018, that was resoundingly voted down by Miami voters. Right. I'm not sure today what the temperature is on that. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding the, you know, increasing the commissioners to from five to seven, uh, there's actually two possibilities. They could uh, redraw the map and keep districts or make them at large. At large and right. I know that there is some support for that because there's some people who are concerned that um, there's too much concentrated power yeah. among the five commissioners. And so if you make it at large, you can sort of um, break up some of that Yeah, power. these districts have become sort of very powerful fiefdoms for, for, for some of these commissioners. Right. Uh, too powerful for a city like Miami. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that, that so again, I mean, what he was proposing, you know, uh, there, there is some support for. But let's turn to one more proposal the mayor raised, which is perhaps the most ironic, if not important, in light of all of his troubles now. And that's the creation of an independent auditor, as it's being called, to essentially watchdog precisely the kind of ethics and corruption controversies swirling around him right now. But the Miami City Commission actually beat him to the punch on that one, right? And Miami voters will now get a chance to vote on this in August? They sh- They might. Um, the The commission instructed the city attorney to draft language for that, and so they, the city commission still needs to vote on that. So okay. it could be August, maybe November. Okay, oh, so that, that that vote that they took earlier this uh, last month was not final then. No. Okay. Okay. That's thanks for pointing that out. But but chances are they will have a chance to vote on this in the primary election in yeah. August. Okay. Yes. Um, so let's also. <laughs> Let's sort of briefly recap then the other corruption scandals that prompted the call for this independent investigator, starting with city manager Art Noriega and the fact that his wife's furniture company has made hundreds of thousands of dollars as, well, the new interior designer for the city government's offices. That, too, was one of the things that really pushed the city commission and the people it was talking to. That was really one of the big impetuses no for uh the creation of this this new auditor yes that's correct there's also um there's uh the arrest of alex diaz de la portilla as well um which happened in um september um and so then you have the 63 and a half million dollar judgment against um city commissioner joe carollo um, there have been concerns um, about the city attorney, Victoria Mendez, who's actually um, leaving midway through this year. Right. And they actually, in, in the last meeting, what they decided was, we're going to let you go, but we're going to let you hang on long enough that you get uh, your pension. Yes. Correct. OK. Yeah. Uh, her pension kicks in in mid to late April. And so she's going to be staying on, I believe, until May. According to what they've and a lot on. of Vic, Vicky Mendez's problems have to do, I should note, with a WLRN investigation right. into her, her and her husband's involvement in a county-wide, um, a gar- what's called the Guardian program, um, that 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 sort of again raised the conflict of interest issues. No, mm-hmm. that's yeah. correct. Yeah, um, and again, but she'll be hanging on for 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 the next few months. Then, uh, as so again, so we we've got. <laughs> As we said before, this whole laundry list, Carollo, Diaz de la Portilla, Vicky Mendez, et cetera, Art, Art Noriega. Um, we've, do you think we've reached, reached a tipping point here for Miamians that, 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 that enough is enough? I, I want to say it feels like an inflection point. Um, at the same time, I know that this is, these things sort of ebb and flow in Miami um, for the last few decades. So 
you know, it feels like an inflection point, um, but it's hard to say that this yeah, isn't just part of a bigger... And we should mention that one of the big in, uh, inflection points of past years involved Mayor Suarez's father, Correct. Xavier Suarez, who himself got into big ethics and corruption, uh, hot water uh, a generation or, or, or so ago. But Tess, finally, in, in your reporting, what are you hearing from people about what's the root of all the corruption plaguing Miami today, and and what's the solution to changing the culture down on Pan American Drive? I mean, I think some of these structural changes could make a difference. You know, Mm -hmm. making the commissioners at large, perhaps, um, making, increasing the number of commissioners from five to seven, instead of, you know, having five people voting on uh, making decisions on behalf of almost half a million people like we have happening right now. Why would the at-large, making the commissioners at-large instead of uh, being associated with specific districts, wh- why do you think that that could make a difference in terms of governmental transparency? Well, I be- think the theory is that it could sort of break up the power that they have, that the commissioners have over their given district a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's also, it comes down to to the actual elections themselves because you know when people feel when there's mistrust in government it kind of creates a sense of apathy or cynicism and Mm -hmm. that does not really push people to go out and vote um unfortunately so you know the voter turnout in the last election was around Mm -hmm. like 12 percent i believe in the general and then for the runoff it was around 10 percent right that's a very good point so making voters feel like if they're at large they're they're, these commissioners are concerned more about the city as a whole instead of just their fiefdoms that's Mm -hmm. that's a great point tess risky is a reporter with our news partner the miami herald tess many thanks thanks so much for having me Still to come, is anti-woke Florida admitting DEI can be a good thing? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last month, as part of a law Governor Ron DeSantis signed last year, the state boards overseeing Florida's public colleges and universities banned the use of state or federal funds to promote DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, on those campuses. DeSantis and the Republican-controlled state legislature insist that DEI is a so-called woke practice that pushes a leftist political agenda in higher education. DEI supporters say it's designed to make sure higher education better represents the community as a whole. But in an exclusive report this week, WLRN's education reporter found that Florida's government actually does see some good in DEI, specifically a state-funded scholarship for the descendants of black people who suffered racist massacres in the central Florida towns of Rosewood and Ocoee in the 1920s. State officials say those DEI scholarships will continue, which brings up a larger question. How are we supposed to decide now in Florida when DEI is a constructive benefit or a, quote, woke agenda? What's your answer to that question? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. How are you? I'm good. So, Kate, describe for us these scholarships for the Rosewood and Ocoee descendants that were originally created by the Florida State Legislature as 
frankly, a form of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? I don't think state lawmakers would put it that way. Uh, but yeah, so these scholarships were created to benefit the descendants of families who suffered in these atrocities. And again, these were violent, deadly attacks on black communities in Rosewood and Ocoee in the 1920s. And so the state legislature has set aside scholarships for a limited number of descendants each year who have to show you know, they are direct descendants. Um, and they're able to receive free in-state tuition at public colleges and universities. And as one state lawmaker put it to me, this was about restoring generational wealth that was mm -hmm. taken from these families. From them. Yeah, and, and, and let's remind our listeners just how terrifying those racial massacres were in Rosewood and Ocoee. What, what exactly happened? I mean, this, this involved classic lynching incidents that, that we remember from that, 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 that period of, of our history more than a century ago. That's right. It was, it was a really awful time in American history, a huge backlash across the country uh, targeting black communities. We saw, you know, the resurgence of the KKK across the country, including in Florida. And so in Ocoee, that was an instance where uh, on Election Day in 1920, a black man went to the polls to try to vote. Mm -hmm. And in response, white vigilantes rioted. They stormed the community murdering black residents, burning homes. Uh, the Associated Press has reported that it's still not known how many were killed, but estimates are between 30 and 60 people. Right. Uh, and in, in Rosewood, uh, that event began with an allegation that a black man had attacked a white woman, mm -hmm. uh, a very common allegation. And these, but these were women and children that were killed in these, these attacks as well, not, not, not just men. Mm -hmm. But it would seem, though, that this is the sort of racial history that Florida, under Governor DeSantis, has made a point of trying to downplay so as not to make white students feel guilty, which are the governor's words, actually, not, not mine. Why, then, is the state retaining these scholarships, observing these racial massacres, even if it risks provoking, quote, white guilt? I think that's a, a great question. Um, you know, I, I spoke to some lawmakers about this, and one was State Senator Geraldine Thompson, whose district includes Ocoee, uh, and she said, you know, this does seem inconsistent uh, with the other mm -hmm. policies and, and uh, goals of the administration. But, you know, we've seen, we've seen a lot of change, uh, even in the past few years, you know, previously, uh, before this, this more recent backlash against DEI, you know, state lawmakers took steps to acknowledge to acknowledge and, and apologize for other mm -hmm. uh, horrific, you know, parts of, of Florida's racist past for the Groveland Four, for instance. Now, so. you, you also mentioned the Rosewood Scholarship in particular has been regarded as a model for promoting slavery reparations for African-Americans. That's a big no-no for the anti-DEI crowd, right? Yeah, so the Rosewood Scholarship has been called a, a national model for reparations. It was created in, in 1994 mm -hmm. and was a result, actually, of a state inquest. Again, created by the Florida State Legislature. By yeah. the Florida Legislature, right, to establish a public history, a public accounting of what happened there, and to respond mm -hmm. with, with this financial support for the generations to come. Mm -hmm. But you point out another important uh, wrinkle here, Kate, and that is that the state also has ethnicity-based scholarship for groups like Latinos, too, like the Jose Marti Scholarship Challenge Grant Fund. 
that can be very much considered a facet of DEI too, no? Arguably. You know, there, there's a state office of financial student assistance that oversees a number of state-funded scholarships and, and grants for Florida students. And yeah, it, it includes other scholarships uh, for students from certain racial and ethnic backgrounds, uh, including the Jose Marti Scholarship, uh, that's need-based merit scholarship for eligible students of Hispanic origin. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, I mean, does the state then realize that if it were to not continue scholarship programs for black students like Rosewood and Okoye, it would then set itself up for the age-old criticism in Florida that conservatives hate race-based benefits like these here, except, that is, when it might benefit Latino communities like Cubans. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's one of the questions is, you know, on a plain reading of, of these scholarships and, and the state regulations, you know, what is the difference in, mm-hmm. in setting aside these funds? Uh, I, I will say there are carve-outs in uh, the, the DEI ban to allow for programs that support first-generation students, students who are veterans, mm-hmm. students with disabilities, students from low-income backgrounds. Uh, so that is permissible. Uh, but but the state also seemed to set itself up for these questions last month when it, it created a waiver in Florida for Jewish students to transfer to the state uh, based on, on, on uh, uh, the um, likelihood that they might be uh, facing anti-Semitism, say maybe in Georgia or another state. It would seem that this also raises that kind of question. Yeah, absolutely, of... of how how are these different? You know, how, how are these approaches different when we're uh, seemingly, you know, pr- promoting, uh, you know, opportunities based on students' mm-hmm. ethnic or, or racial background or right. religious background? And you also point out that there are other, you know, as you were just pointing out earlier, that there are other Florida programs being continued out there, like Minority teacher education scholarships. Mm-hmm. So, so what what gives? Is Florida is where DEI goes to die, as Governor DeSantis would say, or not? Yeah, I mean, as as another state lawmaker put it to me, you know, this is what can happen when officials are are pushing policy and not doing their due diligence on what the impact will be. Mm-hmm. You know, we we want more teachers. We want more teachers from diverse backgrounds in our schools in Florida. So, you know, you have the state created minority teacher education scholars program. There you go. Uh, but it's there are these conflicts. Mm-hmm. And contradictions. and contradictions. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. I'm speaking with WLRN's Kate Payne. We're talking about whether DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is dead or alive in Florida. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Kate, let's let's take a step back here and ask the question I think this discussion has has, has brought up to this point. What exactly is DEI, or, or rather, what was DEI originally meant to be, as opposed to what conservatives in Florida and across the country are accusing it of being today? Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it's a pretty broad tapestry of practices and activities. 
you know, Florida's public universities had to report their DEI activities to the state last year, and it really ranged broadly, you know, from general efforts to increase the diversity of the student body and faculty on campus, you know, professional development training for staff on, you know, how to better meet student needs to things like dinner parties for international students over Thanksgiving break mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah. programs to recruit more nurses who are Latino. So it's, it's a broad range. But to be fair to the conservatives, I think we also need to acknowledge here that just like any well-intentioned social project, DEI has sometimes morphed into liberal overreach on many college campuses in America. Critics say it has too often devolved into cancel culture, for example, or a, or a kind of radioactive political correctness where any, any person or a remark can be arbitrarily condemned for insulting minorities or women or where support for valid causes like Palestinian self-determination, for example, speaking of a more timely example, Mm -hmm. can cross the line into apologies for, say, Hamas terrorism. Do the conservatives at least have a point that DEI overreach of that sort should be confronted? I, I think we have seen, you know, sort of blending around these issues and debates with free free speech, as, as you say. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are these difficulties in our country and, and how to draw the line between free speech and hate speech, you know, mm-hmm. how to ensure folks are free from discrimination, but still have the robust protections of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's tricky. It's, but, by, but by the same token, Florida's state college and, and universities have really not been a hotbed for that kind of DEI overreach that I was just describing, have they? Compared to other campuses, you know, where we've seen the high profile resignations of of university presidents, uh, say, as a result of of these larger debates. No, I I don't think so. So is Florida's anti-DEI crusade, for the most part, then a conservative solution in search of a problem? I think it depends on on who you ask. You know, stepping back a bit, we we did see a watershed moment, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, where, you know, touching on these intense conversations across the country, including on college campuses. And out of that came a number of changes, including more funding uh, to address inequities in universities, Mm -hmm. you know, schools creating for the first time new divisions of diversity, equity and inclusion to you know, at a more strategic, higher level to ask, you know, how they could better serve students from marginalized backgrounds. Uh, and now, you know, a few years down the road, we're seeing this this backlash uh, and those programs rolling back. But the only, you know, quote, DEI controversy that I can think of in recently in Florida maybe involves this uh, Palestinian student group that DeSantis and the state legislature um, accuse of supporting Hamas. But even that seems a, a, a fairly uh, marginal uh, case. I mean, uh, is it? Do you do do? Are they really? You know, are they going after faculty or more, perhaps, or are they going like like this this problem that we're seeing with the selection of the president of uh, a new president at FAU? Mm-hmm. So much of that seems to be uh, the problem. There seems to be based on the DeSantis and and the legislature trying to make sure that we don't hire a woke. <laughs> you know, president for Florida Atlantic University. Yeah, we've seen a number of impacts, you know, through this legislation. uh, And I think professors, you know, do say that they 
there is a chilling effect, you know, mm-hmm. is, is the language of, you know, in some cases, professors uh, renaming their courses to try and avoid right. unwanted attention uh, and sort of self-censoring for well, students well, and, and faculty. We're even seeing the prospect of an entire f- uh, uh, faculty, meaning sociology, being uh, disappeared, no, in, in Florida higher education now? Well, so to, to push back on that, the mm-hmm. what the uh, Department of Education state officials did was uh, removing sociology as a core general education requirement. So sociology okay, will as a continue. requirement then. Okay, yes. all right. Because yeah. I think a lot of people saw that and and worried that whoa, we're seeing sociology being excised from uh, Florida's higher education curriculum. And but that's, that's not right. Yeah, that's not right. It's it's as a requirement then. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. But Kate, finally, is the bottom line here that Florida is acknowledging that DEI does have a beneficial place in its higher education system? Well, I think there's a, a clear argument to make about supporting students from marginalized communities, that being in the best interest of universities and, and in their financial interest, you know, mm-hmm. to, to help students earn a degree on time and set them up for jobs that will help them earn more than their families and move up in society. Uh, And, you know, certainly for our schools in South Florida, like Florida Atlantic University, Florida International University, they pride themselves on this, on social mobility Mm -hmm. uh, and being a place where, you know, students from marginalized backgrounds can succeed. So that that is in their in their best interest. And and, and having more minority presence in things like schools and hospitals, et cetera, sure. Sure. Uh, uh, makes makes a difference in a state like Florida that has mm-hmm. such a diverse population. No. And continuing to become more diverse. Right. Yeah. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. Kate, thanks as always. Thank you. Still to come. Could Haiti's violent troubles get worse as a controversial deadline date approaches next week? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Next Wednesday has the makings of a very bad day in Haiti. You may say things couldn't get worse in Haiti right now as violent gangs rule much of the country, including almost all of the capital, Port-au-Prince. But February 7th is supposedly the deadline for interim Prime Minister Ariel Henry to step down. Problem is, that deadline was set under the assumption that Haiti by now would have held a long overdue election to replace President Jovenel Moïse, who was assassinated three years ago. That hasn't happened. So Henri's departure would likely just create an even larger government vacuum than what already exists in Haiti, which would then likely just make the gangs even stronger. But since many Haitians, including the gangs, want Henri out, there could be more violence if he stays. And while the international community looks flummoxed about how to help what is now widely considered a failed state, a trial in Washington D.C. reminds us that gangs just keep getting, excuse me, that guns just keep getting smuggled to Haiti to the gangs from Florida. How can Haiti be rescued, or more important, rescue itself? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio to assess Haiti's crisis upon crisis is probably the best correspondent covering that crisis, Jacqueline Charles, who covers Haiti and the Caribbean for our news partner, the Miami Herald. 
How are you, Jackie? I'm good. I just want to start briefly with the question of whether next Wednesday, February 7th, may promise to be as explosive in Haiti as some fear it could be for the reasons that I just outlined. What's your take? I think you've done a very good job of outlining how complicated this landscape is. I mean, despite the fact that Haitians and non-Haitians alike try to look at Haiti in terms of black and white and simplify things, the country is not simple. And Haiti is the country where the impossible becomes possible. I mean, we really don't know. I mean, I was going to go to Haiti this week and I canceled my trip because there's turbulence on the ground. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote last week about, you know, the options for where do you hold gang leaders once they're arrested. And one of them was the U.S. built prison that was used for women, where the women were already moved out. And then a few days ago, the gangs finally succeeded in taking over that prison. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm seeing reports where schools um, are shutting down and kids have to be homeschooled because bullets are flying, you know, in, you know, through classrooms around the U.S. embassy. It's been lit up in terms of looting and shooting. Um, Again, we don't know where this is going to end. But what we clearly see is that in the last couple of days. You have various sectors, whether it's in the political arena, whether it's the gangs, whether it's militia, they're all jockeying and creating this turbulence on the ground. And they, most of them would like to see our Henri gone so that perhaps they can fill the exactly. Void. Everybody yeah. has a different reason um, for yeah. this. I mean, what you've heard from the international community is that they are not um, in favor of a transition within a transition. I mean, frankly, they want they want elections. Right? right. And I just wrote a story two days ago that says that the gangs were trying to get guns so that they can decide yeah. the election. And I, wa- I want to get to that. But let, let's focus on that more urgent and core problem for Haiti, the country's virtual takeover by violent gangs, which the U.N., says we're responsible for more than 4,000 murders last year in Haiti. The U.N., the U.S., and the international community have been pinning their hopes for beating back that crisis on a multinational security support mission to help Haiti's vastly outnumbered police force. The mission is supposed to be led by Kenya, but its Supreme Court is now blocking that. Kenya's president insists the effort will go ahead anyway, but Jackie, will it? Well, so Kenya which it's interesting this, their higher court which is a misnomer which is really a lower court so they still have an appellate system they have a supreme court uh-huh. and the president has says that they're going to appeal but what's interesting is that this week he gave an interview in Reuters where he says we are currently working on the paperwork to satisfy the issue raised by the court which is that there is not a reciprocal agreement that exists with Haiti to share police and I'm saying to myself well if you knew that this was there and this is in your law why wasn't this taken care of months ago mm-hmm. so that has led some people to wonder whether or not, given the current context on the ground, the volatility, whether Kenya is having cold feet. Um, uh, so we're going to be watching this closely. But as I also reported today in the Miami Herald. Yeah, I want to get to that. You're, that this is an added anxiety <laughs> here. You report in the Herald today that now Republicans in Congress are starting to balk at the Biden administration's plan to provide the bulk of funding for this Kenya-led police support mission in Haiti. So even if Kenya finds a way to lead it, Can it move forward if the U.S. can't pony up the money? Exactly. And all the U.S. has received is $10 million. I mean, people have been saying, why Kenya? But the reality is is that Kenya is the only country that raised its hands with the wherewithal to even lead such a mission. Jamaica Mm -hmm. has the Bahamas, but 
they're small. They right. can't take this on. And so beggars cannot be choosers. And so for those who initially were not in favor and now because of the situation they're favoring, then they're criticizing that it's Kenya. But the reality is, is that the Haitian police, their numbers have been dwindling um, mm-hmm. at least 1600 last year. The violence is increasing. The U.N. says 4,000. The Haitian foreign minister last week says at least 5,000. Murders and kidnappings have more than doubled in the last year. Right, including six nuns last month. Yes. Yeah, we'll get to that as well. So while we're waiting for Kenya and the international community to get their acts together on aiding Haiti's collapsed public security, the gangs, of course, just keep getting stronger and more brazen. As I just mentioned, last month, they even kidnapped six Roman Catholic nuns for ransom. Fortunately, those sisters were later released. But Jackie, how much worse is the gang rule situation in Haiti now than it was, say, a year ago? I just told you, it's more. Yeah. Th- I mean, kidnappings and killings have more than doubled in numbers. I mean, every two days a Haitian was being killed. You know, every few hours somebody was being kidnapped. And those are the cases that we just know about. I mean, for everyone who thinks the situation cannot get worse, it can get worse. I mean, what has been the benefit to Haiti to some degree is that you're not seeing that kind of organized crime you've seen in, in Ecuador mm-hmm. um, and and. It's they are starting to talk more and more among themselves, but there's still a little bit of disorganization among them. But the police force cannot run simultaneous operations at the same time. And what we've been seeing on the ground is this constant attempt while this neighborhood is on fire and being emptied out. Then you hear about another neighborhood that's being up, that's being attacked. And so that is the fear that, you know, that's happening here. And do you think Republicans in Washington are making that link between immigration, which they're so concerned about and the crisis in Haiti that you've just laid out. I mean, if, if, if they are so concerned about blunting immigration, wouldn't it be in the Republicans' interest to work with the Biden administration on funding to try to ameliorate this situation in Haiti? One would think so. But when you look at the debate in Congress where, you know, immigration, which does have international linkages and it's become a very domestic issue, whether it's by the administration or whether by those who are fighting it, they're not making that 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 linkage. And what we've seen is an emptying out of the country from the people who have been forced out of their neighborhoods to the people who are taking advantage of this humanitarian parole program. Yeah. At the end of the day, Haitians want to stay in their home. They want to stay in their home country. Just like anybody. Like yeah. anybody. And it's their professionals. They they can live, they can work, they can make yeah. a life for themselves. Right. But in, in recent days, we've also been watching the trial in Washington, D.C. of a leader of one of Haiti's most notorious gangs, Katsant Maoso, which has involved a lot of revealing testimony about how weapons get trafficked from Florida to Haiti to make the gangs astonishingly well-armed. What stood out most to you about this trial of Germin Jolie, Eka Yonyon? Well, you know, this trial came to light because of the, you know, the kidnapping of, of the U.S. missionaries. But what you saw was the connection between South Florida and here um, and how they use, quote unquote, straw buyers and how our laws make it possible yeah. for somebody to just walk into a gunshot and purchase guns. And then you saw how these guns were shipped to Haiti. So for all of the people who want something to be done, I think it shows you the complexity of policing something like that. And then it also confirmed what we've always 
always heard and what we knew. They wanted the guns in order to control right. the elections. I mean, there exactly. was a quote where he says, this gun is so powerful, all I need are bullets to wipe out the entire country. Right. And we're, let's, let's get to more of that after this reset here. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking with the Miami Herald's Jacqueline Charles about the tragic crisis in Haiti and how it might even get worse next week. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Jackie, let's look at that Haitian politics factor involving the gangs and how they say they want to have influence over politics in Haiti. And that brings us to the controversial interim prime minister, Ariel Henry, again, who, for all intents and purposes, was installed by the U.S. and the international community after President Moise's assassination in 2021 he appears to be widely unpopular in Haiti, and he has failed to do one, one of the, the one most important job he had, which was to hold new elections. Do most Haitians, as well as the gangs, want him gone? Do you, would you say? I have not done any polls, but let me just go back. You say installed by the U.S. I've always taken issue with this. I think okay. that people need to remember the context under which Ariel Henry came into power. You know, at the time that he was put in, Jovenel Moise, the president who was assassinated, was under immense pressure by the United States and the international community to hold elections. Jovenel came into power in 2017. He never held an election. Right. And that is why oh, when no. he died, we had this this, this vacuum. And Moise he had was failed. no paragon of democracy <laughs> by any stretch of the so, imagination. But yeah. I, I raised that to say that there is a there's an in, there's a problem in Haiti, you know, um, you know, given the situation, the, the gang situation didn't just start yesterday. This crisis didn't not. start yesterday. Yeah. And yes, there's been a lot of pressure on Henri to to deliver because he's the one that's sitting in the power seat. But I really do believe that the fate of Haiti lies in the hands of Haitians exactly. who have to decide enough is enough already. And we have not seen that on either part, but the government br- or those. But that bring, but that precisely brings up the question. If Ariel, if, if Henri is gone, then what? Do we then have civil society organizations like the so-called Montana Group come forward and somehow create a so-called transitional government that will somehow bring about the elections and public security measures Henri failed so badly to accomplish? You forget there's a third factor. Everybody's talking about the gangs, but then there's a militia that's now moving and <laughs> asking for <laughs> Henri to take over. So, yeah. you know, so here we are 20 years later, it feels like we're back in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a few months ago we were talking about it's either, you know, Henri or civil society, but now there's a third and the fourth factor to be considered, which is this, this environmental group that is being, you know, led um, by an individual who's being regarded as a messiah by, by, by a lot of people in the society. And then you also have and, the and, armed And gangs. that person's name is? I'll let you say it. <laughs> We're talking about Guy Philippe, right, who is now back in Haiti. And you and I remember him when he helped overthrow President Jean Bertrand Aristide back in 2004 and how he loved to quote 18th century French philosophers about government. He's now, as you point out, leading protests against Henri. After being deported by the United States. Exactly, on drug trafficking uh, while he was doing time here on drug trafficking charges. Could conditions be ripe for a guy like Guy Philippe? now to rise to power in Haiti. I mean, conditions are always right, but we've seen since Guy Philippe has been returned to Haiti is that areas that were normally quiet and calm, they're now rising up. I mean, in one I met on the border of the Dominican Republic, factory workers have not gone to work in days because 
people want to create turbulence and they're demanding Reese removal and thinking if that, if you shut down the business, then he has to leave power. So while you're dealing with the gang crisis in Port-au-Prince, you're now having in rural areas, you're, you're, you're having this rising up that's happening. But this also raises the question, I mean, not just Guy Philippe, but the gangs themselves. To what extent do they have governmental ambitions, Jack? I mean, do gang leaders like Jimmy Cherizier, known as Barbecue, do they think that they should run Haiti literally as well as virtually as they're doing now? Well, when you hear Barbecue's talk, he says it and he makes a lot, you know, he makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, the argument that he makes is this isn't just about, you know, violence or whatever. This is about a group of people who have been disenfranchised and who have been overlooked. I mean, anyone who goes to Haiti and has never been there, they say, wow, why is it that the people at the bottom have not risen against the people at the top because of the level of, 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 of inequality? And I think that that hasn't entered into the conversation. The reality is, is that you have a lot of young men and young boys mm -hmm. that are now part of these armed groups and one of the discussions that are taking place is what do you do with them if you even if you have a Kenyan force you can't go and arrest everybody right great point Jacqueline Charles covers Haiti for the Miami Herald Jackie many thanks as always thank you for having me take care finally on the roundup you've no doubt heard of Miami's cocaine cowboys the drug kingpins who turned the city into a narco wild west in the 1980s but now Netflix is reminding us of Miami's most ruthless cocaine cow girl, Griselda Blanco, the Colombian queen pin, La Madrina, or godmother as she was known. For the last three years, Griselda Blanco has owned Miami, distributing cocaine. Ms. Blanco's operation has been efficient, deadly, and incredibly successful. Let's get to work. I know what I'm doing. That last voice is Colombian actor Sofia Vergara as Griselda. The Netflix series, titled Griselda, started streaming on January 25th, and it tells us of La Madrina's rise from the streets of Medellin to the narco mansions of Miami. But it also raises a question. Do we really need yet another ultra-violent Netflix series about narcos? Well, maybe we do, if only to remind us that the cocaine that still gets sold and snorted today in U.S. cities like Miami is still wreaking havoc back in Latin American countries like Colombia and, most recently, Ecuador. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with po help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news, the vice president of radio, and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.